now we get into chapter number 13 and we're seeing some things about missions and how God is going to now begin to use missionaries to go from these places and spread the gospel to others around them. And so last time we met together and we're studying from the book of Acts, we looked in chapter number 13 at verse 1 and verse 2 and we talked about the cradle of missions or the starting point of all of this. What was the starting point of missions, the beginning point? We saw that in verse 1 and verse number 2 and we saw how the, the church was growing and the church is serving the Lord and the church is praying. They're, they're a praying church, they're a growing church, they're a serving church and so we're seeing growth in the church and so this was, now this, this was now going to become Antioch there. The church of Antioch was now going to become a, a sending place for missionaries to go. So we talked about the cradle of missions and then we saw the calling of missionaries. From verse 2 to verse number 3, we saw that Paul and Barnabas are called to go out from the church there in Antioch and to be able to spread the gospel to others. Now remember, the Holy Spirit was the one that did the calling, but the local church was the one that did the sending. That's the way that God designs it even today. The Holy Spirit does the calling in people's lives. I don't call anybody to be a missionary. You don't call anybody to be a missionary. God does that, doesn't he? He works in the hearts of individuals to go and to, to spread the gospel to others, to become a missionary or maybe an evangelist or do something in full-time service for the Lord. So the Holy Spirit does the calling, but then the local church does the sending. They send individuals out. And that's what's happening here in chapter number 13. Before they did that, the Bible tells us they fasted and they prayed. And we talked about how that there were four ways that a church can demonstrate a heart for missions. And that's what's happening here in this passage. Uh, we pray for missionaries. That's how we have a heart for missions. We pray for missionaries. But then we also try to encourage them. While they're out on the field, we're trying to encourage them. We're trying to let them know, hey, we're back here at home praying for you. I, I know our, our, our financial support is a blessing to them as well. So we're trying to encourage them. So we pray for them. We encourage them. We give to them. But then also we uh, uh, want to uh, demonstrate that we have a heart for missions by human resources as well. You say, well, what does that mean? That means sending people from our church to go and do mission work that God has put on their heart. So we always want to be a church that's aware of that. If God is working in somebody's heart, we can send them from this place to go and do whatever it is that God is working on their heart to do. And so we said this when we met together last time from Acts chapter number 13. We said that a strong church and a strong Christian has a love for missions. And we're seeing that here in Acts chapter number 13. So we saw the cradle of missions. We saw the calling of missionaries, but then the commencement of missions as well. From there, Paul and Barnabas leave the church there in Antioch and they start what becomes their first missionary journey. And that's where we're going to travel in weeks to come. We're going to get to travel along with them in their first missionary journey and we're going to see places where God takes them. In chapter 13 and verse number 9, there's something very important for us to remember in verse 9. Uh, Saul is for the first time referred to as Paul in verse number 9 of chapter 13. So we read that last time we met together as well. In verse number 9, the Bible says, Then Saul, who also is called Paul. So now we're going to notice that Paul will be referred to as Paul in the scripture as we read forward. Because after he was converted in Acts chapter 9, we always make this statement. We say Saul, who later is going to become Paul. 
Well, this is where he becomes Paul. The first mention of his name now being changed to Paul. And he is working as a team. He's got Barnabas along beside him. And they also have a man named John that the Bible tells us joins their group as well. Uh, and he is, he is serving the Lord with them as well. So they're working together as a team to get the work of the Lord done. They encounter some opposition, but they also get to experience the power of the Lord because in verse number 12, we notice that they get to see their first convert, the first person that comes to know the Lord as Savior from this first missionary journey. Look, at, look with me, if you would, at verse number 12. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. And so we're noticing the first convert that takes place as Paul and Barnabas and John have started this first missionary journey. And then we get to verse number 13 tonight. And this is where we had left off last time we met together. We get to verse number 13. And to be able to understand where we're at on this first missionary journey, there's a couple verses that we have to read to be able to identify the places that they are going. So would you look at verse number 13 with me, and then the first part of verse number 14. We're going to get to see their journey here. Look, it says, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, now Paphos was the place where they had, had been able to experience that first convert, this deputy that came to know Christ the Savior. Well, they loosed from there, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now remember, John had joined the group back up in verse number 5. So at the end of verse number 5, uh, we read that at the end of verse 5 it says, and they had also John to their minister. So John had joined Paul and Barnabas, and he was part of this first missionary journey, but he wasn't part of it long. The Bible tells us there in verse number 13 that he departs. Now, the Bible doesn't give us the reason why he leaves. So we don't know why he leaves. We just know that the Bible tells us that now John has departed. So they've gone from Cyprus to Perga. And then from Perga, the Bible tells us they go to Antioch. Look at verse number 14, if you would. And when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. So we're following their journey here. They've left Cyprus where they saw their first convert, where they started the missionary journey. They travel to Perga, and then from Perga they come to Antioch. Now, do not be confused with this Antioch. This Antioch is in Pisidia, not the Antioch where they started the church back in chapter 11, and the Antioch where they sent Paul and Barnabas to go do this missionary journey. So it's a different Antioch. So don't be confused by the fact that we're uh, using that, that word Antioch twice, a totally different place that they had gone to. And the Bible tells us, starting in verse number 14, we start to see a, a record of a sermon that Paul is going to begin to preach. Now, this is the first recorded sermon in the Bible that we have in Scripture that Paul preaches. So we get the first record of a sermon that Paul preaches here in chapter number 13. By the way, it also is the longest recorded sermon of Paul. So there's other sermons that are recorded, but this happens to be the longest one that's recorded. So we get the first recorded sermon of Paul. This sermon takes place in the synagogue. Would you look with me at the end of verse number 14? And went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now Paul is going to be invited to share something with those that are there. Look with me if you would at verse number 15. And after the reading of the law and the prophets... The rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, 
Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said. So this is the beginning point of this sermon. Again, he was invited to give a word of exhortation. Now, that's the wrong thing to say to a preacher. Do you want to get up and give a word of exhortation? Yes, I don't mind if I do. <laughs> I'd love to get up and say something that God has on my heart. That's the wrong thing to say to a preacher. And Paul took advantage of it, didn't he? They're going to they're invite me to come up and share a word of encouragement. I'm going to do that. So what does Paul do? Right there in the synagogue, Paul uses this opportunity that God gives him. And by the way, when God gives you opportunities, take advantage of them. He takes advantage of this opportunity and he uses this opportunity to communicate the gospel and God's message through preaching. He uses the avenue of preaching. He's going to preach here. He's going to give a message so that they can hear the truth of the gospel. And we will see the gospel in this message that he preaches. Now, can I say this just for a moment? When we're thinking about the preaching of God's word, a Christian today cannot survive without the word of God. We cannot survive without the Word of God. Paul knew that they needed the Word of God. Paul knew that they needed God's Word preached to them. Can I say this? We cannot survive without the preaching of God's Word. We need the preaching of God's Word. Now, we need God's Word every day, but we need the preaching of God's Word. That's why it is so vitally important to be here every time the doors of God's house are open so that we can receive the encouragement and the exhortation from the Word of God. So Sunday school is important, and Sunday morning service is important, and Sunday evening service, and Wednesday evening service is important, and every night that we meet together for revival coming up, it's important because we're going to be, get to be encouraged and exhorted from the Word of God. The Bible says this in the book of Peter, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word. We ought to have a desire in our hearts to be fed by the Word of God, to have the Word of God preached to us. So biblical preaching is vital to a strong church. Now we talked about already how uh, a strong church has a love for missions. That's, that's, that's an important part of being a strong church. We've got to have a love for missions. But another very important part of a strong church is the preaching of the Word of God. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians, and you uh, don't have to take the time to turn there with me. I'm just going to read it quickly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 18, it says this, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. So those that are lost without Christ, the, the preaching of the cross is, it, it, it may, may, be, may be foolishness. He, he says it might, might, might sound like foolishness to them. But notice what he says in verse number 18. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Hey, the preaching of the cross is the power of God to us, isn't it? Because the preaching of, of, of the cross is for many of us what we were experiencing when God spoke to our heart. And when we got saved, I know that my salvation took place after I heard a message from a preacher. And God spoke to my heart. And many of you might be able to give that testimony. That you were sitting in a service. And you heard the preaching of God's word and God began to speak to your heart. And so for those that are lost, yes, it might seem like foolishness, but for those that are saved, it's the power of God, isn't it? And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and he says in verse 21, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So what happens because of preaching? People are saved. 
People come to believe in Jesus because of the preaching of God's word. And then verse number 23. In the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. So yes, again, it might be foolishness to some. But he says we preach Christ and we're preaching him crucified. We want people to know the good news of the gospel that Jesus died and that he was buried and that he rose again. So the Bible says this in the book of Timothy that we are to preach the word. We're to preach the word and we're to be busy doing that so that people have the opportunity to hear the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul did. They said, anybody want to exhort anyone? Any, you got a word of exhortation? Yes, I do. And I'm going to use this opportunity to preach the word of God. So I want you to notice the content of this sermon. I want us to notice the content of this sermon. And if you'll really concentrate upon this, I think this will be powerful for you tonight. I want us to notice the content of the sermon. Number one, uh, Paul begins to establish in their mind the preparing of the Messiah. The Messiah, there was a preparation for the Messiah to come. And Paul speaks about that in verse number 16 and he goes down in verse number 22 and he speaks about this. Look with me, if you would, at chapter 13 and the end of verse number 16. It says this, men of Israel and ye that fear God, he said, give audience. He's letting them know, I need you to listen up. I'm about to share something that is of most importance to you. you you've, you've got to listen up. Notice what he says in verse 17. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with a high arm brought he them out of it, out of Egypt, he means there. And then in verse number 18, and about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. Here's the first thing we notice about this nation of Israel. Again, he's talking about the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel is going to be very influential, very instrumental in the preparing of the Messiah. So he says in the verses that we just read, he says, Israel, I want you to know that you are cherished by God. So Israel is cherished by God. Now you might ask the question, well, why does God love Israel so much? Well, because his Messiah, his Savior came through them, didn't he? And so that's why God loves Israel so much. And Paul is letting them know, God loves you. Israel, you are cherished by God. Now, how did he show his love to them? Would you look at a word that Paul uses there? Would you look at uh, verse number uh, 17 there? Verse number 17. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people. He uses the word exalted there. The idea in this word exalted is the same as an idea that is given in the Old Testament of our Bible. If you would, please turn with me to the prophet Isaiah for just a moment because I want you to see how much God cherishes Israel and how that Paul connects this with a great truth that we see in the book of Isaiah. Would you turn to Isaiah and chapter number one for just a moment? And we're going to get a picture of what we mean when we say that God exalted Israel. Look at Isaiah chapter number one and look with me, if you would, at verse number, uh, verse number two. Isaiah chapter one and verse number two. It says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, he says, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished 
and brought up children. We'll pause there in that verse. He says, I have nourished and brought up children. Now, when you go back in your Bible to Acts chapter 13, where we just were, the thought that he is giving there in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 2 is similar, uh, similar to what he, what he means when he mentions in Acts chapter 13 and verse number 17 that Israel is exalted. He's using the idea there for the nation of Israel that God cherished you so much that he, and he loves you so much that he nourished you and he brought you up just like a parent would nurture their child and love their child as they are raising them. What an example God gives to us, right? That he as our God, the God of the nation and the people of Israel, he cherished you so much that he nourished you and he brought you up. He loved you just like we would use the example of a parent loving their child. That's how much God loves Israel. He cherishes Israel. Now he explains in a little bit more detail what he did to nourish and care for them and bring them up in verse number 18. Notice what it says. And about the time of 40 years, now we're back in Acts chapter 13 verse 18. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. Here's the idea that, that, that Paul is, is saying in this sermon. He's saying that God cared for Israel so much, he nourished them, he cherished them, he loved them so much that when they were traveling in the wilderness for 40 years, he did many things to take care of them. And if you've studied through those wilderness journeyings, you've, you know that is true, right? God provided for them the needs that they had. When they needed water, God provided for them. When they needed uh, something to eat, oh, manna, what is this? Man, this is something for us to be able to eat. God provided for them food. He provided for them clothing and shoes that would not wear out for 40 years. Man, that's, 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 that's some good clothing, right? That, that, that's, some good, that's a good pair of shoes to not wear out for 40 years because God was doing the providing, wasn't he? But not only did he provide for them, the Bible tells he also protected them. Think about how he protected them as they crossed the, the, the Red Sea. When the Egyptians were behind them and they were coming behind them with their chariots and, 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 their, and their horses behind them, God provided protection for the children of Israel as those waters were crossed. And not only that, but his presence was with them the whole time. He's nourishing them. He's, he's showing his love for them. He's taking care of them. And Paul is letting them know as he gathers before this crowd, he says, I want to let you know that Israel is cherished by God. But the second thing he says about Israel is this. Not only is Israel cherished by God, but Israel, number two, is chosen by God. Not only does God love you, but God chose you to be, chose you, excuse me, to be his people. Look at what it says with me, if you would, in verse number 17 again. It says, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. Now, you probably remember that all of this came about from really the very beginning of our Bible, right? In Genesis chapter number 12, there's a man named Abraham who comes on the scene. And God gives a threefold promise to Abraham, doesn't he? Remember that? He tells him, I'm going to give you a land. We know that is the land of Canaan that God had promised for Abraham and for his children to follow. 
and all the generations that would come after. He says, I'm not only going to give you a land, but he says, I'm going to give you a seed. And we know what he means by that is the nation of Israel. And, 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 and God, again, God's uh, cherished people, God's chosen people. So I'm going to give you a land. Uh, I'm going to give you a seed, the, the, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And then he also gave, he gave the promise of a blessing as well, didn't he? Because who was going to come from the people of Israel? We know that the Messiah would come. And so God says, I have chosen you. And so God took Abraham's family, a family that we read about starting in Genesis chapter 12. And we might look at them at first as being pretty insignificant. I mean, here's Abraham's family. Seems like just an, a, another ordinary man. But God took Abraham's family and he made Abraham's family into a great nation. You might remember that Abraham and Sarah gave birth to Isaac. And then from Isaac, Jacob was born. And then from Jacob, you remember, he had 12 sons. And from those 12 sons, a nation that had never existed before came into being. And God was letting them know, and Paul speaks to this truth, I cherish Israel, but I've chosen Israel as well. But then would you look at me, with me at the third thing that Paul wants them to recognize about Israel. Not only does God cherish Israel, not only has God chosen Israel, but God cares for Israel as well. He lets them know Israel is cared for by God. Would you look at the end of verse number 17? He says, when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm brought he them out of it, Verse 18, and about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. So he brought them out of Egypt. He delivered them through the wilderness for those 40 years of journeying and wandering. He delivered them through all of that. Then look at verse 19. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the, in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. So then the Bible tells us that God gives them victory over Canaan. So not only has he now established this nation, he's brought them out of Egypt, he's delivered them through the 40 years of wandering, but then he gives them victory over Canaan, and then what do they get to possess? They get to possess the promised land, don't they? That's the land that God told them they were going to have. You're going to get to have a land. That land's going to be Canaan. This is a land that is flowing with what? Milk and honey. You get to go to the promised land. But then look at verse number 20 if you would. This is another way in which God cared for them. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So in verse number 20, he gives to us a, I believe, I believe a picture of God's mercy. Now you want to talk about a God who cares for you, just pause at just that subject of his mercy. That would be enough right there, wouldn't it? God shows to them a picture of his mercy in the fact that he was willing to give them, to, to, to give them judges. When they would get off, off track and when they would do things that displease God, he would raise up a judge in his mercy. And then can I also say this? I don't believe that God giving judges was just a picture of mercy. I believe it was also a picture of his patience as well. And here's why I say God was a patient God. Because God had blessed the nation of Israel, but yet they were unfaithful to him. See, he was faithful to them, but they were unfaithful to him. And yet he still shows mercy and he still shows patience. Now, sometimes as humans, our patience can run out 
when somebody's not keeping their end of the deal, right? Man, we want them to do something that they are to be faithful with. They're not fulfilling their end of the deal, and our patience can run a little short. Well, God says, even though you didn't fulfill your end of the deal, even though you weren't faithful, I'm still merciful to you, I'm still faithful to you, and I still have patience. And so he's talking about this cycle of judges that take place. And of course, we read that in the book of Judges, when they would go away from the Lord, the nation of Israel would get astray from the Lord, and they would start worshiping the false gods of their neighbors. The neighbors around them worshiped false gods. And so they started worshiping the false gods of these, of these, neighbor, uh, of these neighboring places. Then God would raise up a judge, again, in his mercy and in his patience. He would, he would really, really, it was God's way of chastening them with this judge, trying to get them back in line. But I'll say this about our God. He chastens us because he loves us, doesn't he? You know, just like a parent would say, and we're talking about God loving his people and nourishing them and caring for them. God loves his people enough to chasten them And he's trying to do that because of his love that he has for them. So God doesn't turn his back on us, but instead he chastens us because he loves us so that he can get us back in line. He wanted them to get right. He wanted them to do right. And he wanted them to stay right. And then the Bible tells us in verse number 21 and verse number 22, he grants them a request for a king. So they desire a king now. And God grants that desire for them. What are we noticing here in these verses that we're reading? We're noticing the preparing for the Messiah. This is all setting up the preparation for the Messiah. God has established this nation. He loves them. He's chosen them. He's caring for them. And he's preparing for this Messiah that's going to come. So look with me, if you would, at verse number 22. It says, and afterwards, excuse me, and afterward, they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. Now verse 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. So the Bible tells us he, in his care for the nation of Israel, he grants them their request, he gives them their king. Of course, we know what happens when Saul becomes king, right? He he is not the king that God desires him to be. And so because of his disobedience, he is rejected as being king, and then David takes over. Now David is a king who is a man after God's own heart. God has raised him up to be the king. The second thought I want to give you tonight is what we'll close with tonight and then we'll finish the sermon when we have opportunity, Lord willing, to meet together again next Sunday night. We notice the preparing of the Messiah. Now, how does God do all of this work to prepare for the Messiah? Well, remember, He loves the nation of Israel. So He establishes this nation that did not exist before, but He now establishes this nation, allows them to possess the land of Canaan, gives him the promises of this land and the seed and the blessing. He's now allowed them to possess the land that flows with milk and honey. He's letting them know that he loves them. He's chosen them. He's caring for them. But the second thought I want you to notice tonight is the promise of the Messiah. The promise of the Messiah. 
So he is preparing for the Messiah, and then he gives a promise that the Messiah is going to come. Notice with me, if you would, verse number 23 tonight. And he said, Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, who is the man's seed that he is talking about there? We know he's talking about David, right? David, a man after God's own heart. Now, if you have been with us on Wednesday nights, as we are journeying through the Old Testament of our Bible, we have talked about how that God made a promise to David, didn't he? Now, remember, David wanted to build the temple, didn't he? That was his big desire. Man, I want to be the one that builds the temple. Does this work for the Lord to build the temple? But God said to David, he said, I'm not going to have you build the temple. Instead, I'm going to have your son, Solomon, build the temple. And we know that Solomon worked to build the temple. But God says, I'm going to give you an even greater blessing. You remember that? I'm going to give you an even greater blessing. Because the blessing that you're going to receive, David, is the fact that you are going to be in the line of the Savior of the world. The Messiah that is going to come. God gave that promise to David from David's line. The Messiah is promised. And he, what, what, what Paul does in this passage of Scripture in a very unique way, and this is why you do not want to miss the next part of this sermon, because Paul, in a very unique way, uses David as a, as, as a springboard in this message to be able to present the gospel. To this point, all he's done is established in their hearts the fact that God has prepared the Messiah and God has promised the Messiah. But then he uses the remainder of the message to talk to them about how they need to come to know the Messiah. This is the one that's been prepared for you and he's been promised for you and he has come. And Paul lets them know, and we'll get to it next time we meet together, Lord willing. He, he lets them know, and this, this, this Messiah, this Savior, he died for you. And he didn't just die for you. He was put in a tomb. And then he wasn't just placed in that tomb to stay there forever. He rose up out of that tomb and he, and he begins to present the gospel to them to let them know that this Messiah that has been prepared and this Messiah that has been promised has come and he has done exactly what God desired for him to do. And if you will just put your trust in him, you can have the promise of heaven and the hope of eternal life with Christ. Now that's the exact message we would preach, isn't it? God wants us to preach the message of the gospel, doesn't he? And that is the exact message that we would preach, that God has prepared the Messiah He's promised that the Messiah would come and then the Messiah did come and he gave his life for us and he rose up from the grave so that we could have hope of heaven. Now this is a message we want to deliver to a lost and dying world, isn't it? We want to deliver this message that we're delivering here in this first missionary journey. We want to deliver it to the world around us. So may we ask God for opportunities like Paul had. Paul had an opportunity, didn't he? And he took advantage of that opportunity to get up and preach Jesus. Again, we can't survive without the Word of God. It is vital for us as Christians to have the Word of God. It is vital for us to be in places where we're going to get to hear the preaching of God's Word. And what place did God, uh, uh, did God institute for us to hear the preaching of God's Word? The local church, didn't He? And we get to sit in the local church and hear the preaching of God's Word and be able to understand what God would have for us to do, this message He wants us to share. 
So this week, may our prayers be that we'll take this message of the gospel and we'll be light to others that are around us. One of the avenues, obviously, as a church that we have to do that is on Tuesday afternoon, we're going to meet together with those children. If you're not a part of that, would you pray for that? Would you pray as we present the gospel to those children that some may come to know Christ the Savior? Would you pray on Wednesday as we meet together for the two Bible clubs there that as we're presenting the gospel, that people can hear the gospel, children can hear the gospel, and they can come to know. And then let us all be the lights that God wants us to be. Let us all be the salt that God wants us to be to present the gospel and the good news of Christ to others around us uh, this week. May we ask Him for opportunities. Now, one of the opportunities that we want you to take advantage of is inviting folks to the revival so that they can hear the gospel. And by the way, as we're inviting people to the revival, God may give us an opportunity right then to share the word of God, uh, the the word of God and the gospel of God to somebody right while we're inviting them to the revival. Take advantage of those opportunities as well. But let's be inviting, let's be the light, and let's be the salt that God wants us to be because we serve a powerful God, don't we? We talked about it a little bit this morning, a God who's able to do exceeding abundantly. And so let's be faithful to Him as He has been faithful to us. So we've started out this sermon, but it hasn't come to a close yet. And so Lord willing, as we meet together next Sunday night, we'll continue on here and we'll see uh, about the message of the gospel that's given. Father, I pray that you bless this message that's been preached tonight.